you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com Goals24. That's Chime.com Goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Wounded Warrior Project, honoring and empowering post 9-11 veterans. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The transition from military to civilian life can be daunting for many veterans. Senator Debbie Stabenow joined the Washington Post to discuss the challenges returning veterans face as they seek health care, enter the job market, and look to get back into the rhythm of civilian life. Let's listen. Hi, everybody. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Washington Post, and welcome to today's program, which is the second of a special series we've been doing on veterans and issues that affect them. Today, we're going to focus on veterans' transition back to civilian life after serving their country. I'm especially pleased to welcome as our first guest, Senator Debbie Stabenow, uh, who has been a champion of these issues and was the author of the uh, Transition uh, uh, Improve Act, which is intended to uh, improve the way in which our vets uh, move back into civilian life. Uh, Senator Stabenow, welcome, and let me ask you to explain a little bit about uh, this bill and what it includes. It was signed into law by President Trump in December, uh, now operating. What does it do for our vets? Well, David, first of all, I want to thank you for these programs. It's so very important. And I want to give a shout out to my Republican Senate colleague who joined me, Senator Mike Crapo. This really was a, a bipartisan effort. And it came from veterans directly. We just I did a series of roundtables. I think it was 13 roundtables a couple of years ago just to check in with folks, which I want to do on a regular basis. And a lot of my focus is around uh, healthcare, mental health, and, and um, other issues that relate to uh, uh, healthcare. And one of the things that kept coming up, we did these roundtables, was the fact that veterans said that when they came home, oftentimes they didn't feel connected or who, who should they be reaching out to, depending on what their needs were. And the veteran service organizations, the VSOs, were all saying, gee, I wish we knew who was in the community so we could be reaching out to be able, whether that's uh, training and support or healthcare or mental health care or um, education or whatever. So uh, basically the idea came from veterans and we started working with the Department of Defense and realizing that um, there, first of all, that the transitioning needs to happen sooner. Um, and so we're, we backed it up to a year out where someone would be uh, given uh, more opportunity to, if they wanted to, purely voluntary, but if they want to, to be able to share specific contact information, email, phone number, address, and so on with their state Veterans Affairs Office and give permission to be able to um, uh, give permission 
to be able to share that with people in the community that they're coming back to. So it's just getting going. Uh, we're, it really just began to be operationalized a couple of months ago. I hope I, I wish I had more information on specifics. Each state is gonna be doing it uh, a little bit differently, but the whole idea is to provide as much information and support about all the services that are available and the people that want to help in the community as veterans are coming home. Senator, uh, tell us just a little bit about the fundamental issue that you're dealing with here of transition back to civilian life. For this generation of, of, of veterans, what are some of the things that you hear uh, that uh, concern them, that make it difficult to make that reintegration in civilian life, that uh, make counseling such an important part of this package that you put together? Well, it, first of all, one of the things that we heard, David, over and over again is that uh, when folks are transitioning out, first of all, the, what they're thinking about is getting out and getting home. And so that uh, the information that they, they are given through the Department of Defense may be something at that moment they are really focused on or they may not be really focused on it. And so that the ability to follow up uh, when they're really focused, okay, now I am coming home or I am home and I want to be able to really take a deep dive on what I need right now, what's available to me, that counseling becomes even more important. Um, it's, it's the basics around uh, issues related to healthcare. I think in the world that we're in, uh, that it's also around uh, mental health issues and how to reach out and get uh, support so that we, it's something that is uh, normal and supported and, and easy to get uh, help with. A lot of it's around um, education. Okay, we have a what we call a post 9-11 GI Bill and we have some new uh, rules around also being able to transfer that um, among family members and so on that uh, folks have a lot of questions on. What does that mean, GI Bill? Uh, and uh, what about what's happening in the community? What if I need help in uh, getting a loan? Where am I gonna live? Or, what about the fact that I come out of the uh, the service and may have a will ha I certainly have terrific skills? How do I translate those? And that's the other issue that uh, I hear about so many times. I mean, somebody is working as a medic or working in healthcare, but then comes home and has to go through all these hoops all over again to be able to be certified to work at home, or maybe it's skilled trades, or you know, somebody is an electrician, but. What are they going to have to do to be able to um, transition, to be able to work at home? They certainly don't want to go through that whole training process all over again. So there's a, a lot of questions uh, that people have, but it's usually around uh, health and issues that relate to jobs, making a living, those kinds of things. Uh, Senator, let's talk about the particular uh, difficulties that uh, vets are experiencing now. The transition back uh, after deployment, after service is, is always stressful, but these days we've got some super stressors because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we've got an unemployment rate among veterans uh, that's about 12%, a really uh, rough uh, situation for them. For post 9-11 veterans, the numbers show that it's even higher, about 13%. What thoughts have you got about uh, what we can do in this particular stressful period caused by the pandemic and the lockdown to help these folks who have men and women who've served our country, uh, been in danger, and now are coming back to a, an economy and a country that's 
a pretty tough, tough place. Well, first, David, let me just step back and say for all of us, we've got to make sure this pandemic uh, is addressed, right? And so uh, in, on, on that point, um, one of the things that I've been very involved in pressing for is to make sure there's more testing at VA facilities, uh, that they have the, the PPE, that, that, you know, the protective equipment, that we are doing everything we can to support our veterans and both those that are in veterans hospitals as well as those who are coming home, that they have what they need. And we've got to make sure we get our arms around this pandemic. We are in a really challenging time in the economy on top of all of that. Now, first, I have to say my bias is that during a tough time, I want to hire a vet. I'm going to hire somebody, you know, who's been through tough times. And so, um, you know, I encourage employers all the time that, that they ought to be putting veterans at the top of the list. But the reality is there, there are several things in place. I think sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. There's a, actually a, a tax credit for employers, a work opportunity tax credit for um, hiring veterans and encouraging uh, hiring uh, disabled vets. And so um, that certainly is uh, a piece of that. Personally, I believe my, my dad was in World War II. He was in the Navy. And when he came home, I grew up with him saying a veteran shouldn't be at the back of any line. So whether that's jobs, education, healthcare, whatever it is. And so I think right now in particular, making sure that people know how they can use the skills that they have if they need additional training, certification, licensure, that we put them at the front of the line, that they understand the post-GI Bill, and uh, the, may, it may be that this is a moment where uh, it would make more sense to go back to school if that's something that somebody wants to do, given this uh, climate that we're in, in in terms of jobs. I will also say that as uh, the uh, lead uh, Democrat on the Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry Committee that I've looked broadly at the area of agriculture. We've got a lot of our veterans that are coming home from small towns like where I grew up in Northern Michigan uh, who want to go back to the farm. Or there's somebody who is finding that for them, working with the land, working with soil right now is something that is very meaningful for them and helps them transition back. And so when I chaired the committee in 2014, we set up for the first time uh, a veterans liaison office and uh, training and support for people coming home that want to go into agriculture. And in the bill that we passed uh, in 2018, these are five-year bills, we actually added more support for training. We added discounts for folks that need loans. Uh, and uh, folks that want to buy what's called crop insurance that covers the crops that you grow, we're now giving basically discounts to veterans for that to help with the cost of doing those kinds of things on loans and, and grants and so on. And so I look broadly at what we uh, need to be doing, whether that's uh, in agriculture or whether it's in any part of our economy, but I think we need to have a strategy for veterans in every area. So I was glad to do that uh, in agriculture, but we actually need a strategy in, in every part of our economy to put veterans first. Senator, let me focus uh, a, a bit uh, on the specific healthcare issues associated with COVID-19. Do you have any uh, indication that vets 
seem to have uh, unusual susceptibility uh, to COVID-19? Have, have there been any statistics like that? And we also think about VA hospitals where folks are together in confined spaces, and we, we think about just terrible stories about uh, nursing homes, uh, facilities uh, like that, where the, there, there's been a very uh, rapid and, and deep spread of COVID-19. Do you have any uh, insight into whether those kinds of, of problems uh, are arising in the veterans community with COVID-19? I think, David, it involves uh, the same kinds of things that we're seeing in the broader community. Uh, in a VA hospital, there's going to be uh, more risk, uh, just like uh, a nursing home or any kind of closed facility. Uh, we need to make testing, 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 testing available. Um, it is more available now, but uh, you know, our, our nursing homes, our VA hospitals were not originally the places where extensive testing was done, and that needs to be done. It needs to be done for the employees. It needs to be uh, managed in a particular way. If uh, depending on what the testing shows, it, it needs to relate to uh, who can come in and out of the facilities and so on. So it relates to uh, the age, the um, disability, uh, if veterans are coming home with a lot of pre-existing conditions, that heightens risk, just like for anyone else. Um, if someone is uh, doesn't have a home and, and they're homeless, um, they're heightened as well because the, of the fact that if someone's in a shelter or maybe if they're on the street and we say, uh, wash your hands and, and you know there's all of these protocols to protect yourself that folks can't do. So we so it we're not finding anything about being a veteran per se, at least I have not seen that yet, but we do know our veterans because of many different situations that they're in uh, can be at higher risk. And so it's very important that we are taking this seriously and again, putting veterans at the top of the list. You know, I might also just mention as an aside that um, there's other kinds of exposures that our veterans have. We have this new chemical group of chemicals called PFAS, which we know a lot about in Michigan because it's related to uh, chemicals used in manufacturing and so on. But we're seeing in a lot of our Air Force bases, our various bases, that we are in a situation where um, uh, veterans have been exposed, just like Agent Orange years ago. I remember one of the very first things I worked on as a very young state representative in Michigan was trying to get the VA to recognize Agent Orange. Well, now we have something new that relates to firefighting foam that's been used on Air Force bases and Army bases and National Guard bases and so on. And so I've introduced legislation to make that a service related disability if you have uh, health problems related to this. And so we, we have general things that affect everyone like COVID-19, and then we have ex particular exposures that come from our veterans being put in various situations around chemicals. And it shouldn't be that hard to make sure that we make any health condition from those kinds of exposures service-related uh, disabilities for coverage. And over the years, it seems like it's been a fight every single time. Senator, thank you for, for giving us that kind of specific uh, focus. And it's helpful when we think about the issue of testing 
to have in mind a, a picture of a VA hospital where there are a bunch of uh, people who served served the country who, who really need to get testing to be able to stay safe. So uh, thanks for that. I'd love to turn to politics for, for a minute. Uh, we have about five minutes left in our conversation. Your state of Michigan was absolutely crucial in the 2016 election. Uh, President Trump's uh, victory there helped really assure him his path to the White House. Let me ask you, you follow Michigan as close as anybody. How did, how did things look to you uh, at this point in the presidential race? Well, I would say, David, it's different today. I mean, it was complicated. Michigan's always complicated. Let me start by saying we are a very independent group in Michigan. And so uh, very uh, much of a ticket-splitting state. So people uh, make their own independent decisions. Uh, I will say that, you know, what's happened in terms of the economy has hit us really hard, not just even COVID-19, but um, the uh, some of the, the trade fights and so on have uh, hit us very hard. Some of the, the chaos that has happened, the, the tax cuts that came didn't go to the majority of folks in Michigan. Um, and yeah, we got a lot of services cut as a, re a result of that. Um, right now, though, I think people are really worried about what's happening uh, in not having a serious national approach on COVID-19. I mean, the reality is that when every other country, in fact, the, the story of uh, uh, our first case, our first case in America was on January 20th, same day as the first case in South Korea. They took it extremely seriously, started aggressively testing and doing other things to protect their people. And our country waited three months and, and did not act. And at the, as a result of that, we're now, uh, we, we have a about a little over 4% of the world's population, and we have over 25% of the cases. And South Korea has been able to come out of this and manage it and keep their cases uh, way down. And so um, we've just not seen a national focus. And the other thing is, we in Michigan, we make things and grow things. That's what we do. And we're very proud of that. And what we need is a national focus on manufacturing the things that we need in America to keep us safe and that we need to understand that medical equipment and things like ventilators and masks and gloves and gowns and all these things are just as important to our national security now, given what a pandemic can do. And we need an, a much more aggressive approach of using the tools of the federal government, the, the Defense Production Act that can require that these things be made in the United States. And so we don't have a national strategy going on right now. And it's affecting us in terms of our health, uh, you know, having more deaths than anywhere else in the world, even though we uh, only have about over 4% of the world's population, but we also aren't using the tools to create the jobs. And so we see some things happening. I'm proud that you know, we have companies uh, all across Michigan and GM and Ford stepped up to retool in, you know, days what would take months to do in terms of making ventilators. And we've got, you know, our companies doing hand sanitizers and all the protective equipment and so on and, and switched on a dime to do that for our country. But that needs to be a long-term strategy for us to keep and create more jobs in this country. And I think people are watching the chaos, and I would say the president's going to have a much harder time this time in Michigan. And, 
And Senator, just to focus on this a little bit more, uh, there have been some recent polls that show uh, President Trump behind his likely presumptive challenger, Joe Biden, uh, in Michigan and some other swing states. Is that what you're hearing as you talk to your constituents uh, in Michigan? Are you seeing that kind of shift from people who voted for Trump last time around who were now saying, I don't think so? I'm seeing that, although, again, I, I think Michigan's a very ticket-splitting state, and it will probably be closer than what these early polls look like. Um, but I do feel that people look at Joe Biden, who, um, I have to tell you, uh, when we needed help uh, to be able to save the auto industry, I mean, Joe Biden as vice president was right there. And President Obama. And at the time, President Trump was saying, let him go bankrupt. And Mike Pence actually voted against us. He actually voted against helping save a million jobs in manufacturing. And so, um, you know, I and when I look at the Great Lakes, which are beloved for us, they really define who we are as well as our economy. The president has spent the majority of his time in office trying to completely or just about completely defund the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, which I authored in 2010, which is the way we focus on cleaning up the lakes and protecting the lakes. So, I, you know, when people are looking at this going, I don't think this is somebody that really understands Michigan. Um, but on the other hand, I would not say anything's a slam dunk. I mean, there's, you know, five months is a long time in politics. So, um, you know, I, I'm cautiously optimistic because I want somebody who gets us <laughs> and has our back. And I know from working with Joe, uh, Joe Biden in the Senate as well as vice president, I have great confidence in him. But I also oh. know that people in Michigan, they're going to decide. And, you know, I think it's uh, I think it's always closer than people think in Michigan. Uh, Senator, we'll come back and, and talk to you maybe uh, in uh, October as we get closer to November 3rd. I want to thank you today for coming on Washington Post Live and talking about these veterans issues and in particular about the legislation that, that you authored. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.